welcome to the Itchy Podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Itchy is the official journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the Itchy Podcast, we hear from authors of articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode is the second of a two-part series covering the May 2019 issue. That's volume 39, issue 5. First up, Kimberly Blumenthal, Paige Wickner, and Erica Shinoy discuss their research on outcomes from an inpatient beta-lactam allergy guideline across a large U.S. health system. Then, Raymond Dantes and Claire Roth talk about the results of a survey of hospital epidemiologists and infection preventionist members of the Shea Research Network. The survey ascertained participants' opinions regarding hospital-onset bacteremia and fungemia as a potential healthcare-associated infection metric. And lastly, Dr. Gabriel Brigand discusses his study, which used a new technology system to longitudinally observe and assess the impact of OR staff movements and door openings on surrogates of the infectious risk in surgery. After listening, please be sure to go to the May issue to read the full articles discussed on today's podcast. Now let's get started. Up first, I'm speaking with Dr. Kimberly Blumenthal, Dr. Paige Wickner, and Dr. Erica Shinoy, three of the co-authors on the article titled, Outcomes from an Inpatient Beta-Lactam Allergy Guideline Across a Large U.S. Health System. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thank you for having us. Uh, Can you start by telling our listeners about your study, what you investigated, and what you found? Absolutely. So this uh, manuscript, which is um, in Itchy right now, is a sort of five years in the making in that we've been working together on uh, a structure for addressing inpatient beta-lactam allergies in our patients for a number of years. And what this specific paper covers is the safety and electronic health record updates that we identified in what is now the largest initiative that uses test doses or graded challenges to address inpatient beta-lactam allergies. Uh, so what we did was at uh, Partners Healthcare System hospitals that have uh, acute inpatient access, which was Mass General Hospital, Brigham and Women's Hospital, North Shore Medical Center, Uh, Brigham Faulkner Hospital, as well as Newton Wellesley Hospital. We did the same approach, which is this guideline approach that uh, addresses inpatient beta-lactam allergies. So our inpatients who have a beta-lactam allergy, we are able to uh, take more history about that allergy. And if it's low risk, we give them a baby dose of the uh, beta-lactam that they need uh, for their current infection. And so this baby dose we call test doses. And we started a number of years ago doing this guideline at Mass General Hospital, and then we also studied it independently at the Brigham Women's Hospital. And one thing we were really looking forward to doing was to sort of look at a large safety assessment of this approach on all of these hospitals. We described our implementation of this guideline in uh, an implementation paper that was published last year, and then this was our first analysis of the safety of all of these test doses done at academic sites, community sites, all the sites I mentioned. Uh, And so we were able to look at a little over a year uh, of data, and we found over 1,000 test doses to beta-lactam. So it was 1,046 beta-lactam antibiotic test doses. And most of those test doses were to cephalosporin antibiotics, uh, 77% of them. 
And then there were also test doses to penicillin antibiotics, 14%, and then also, uh, fewer to carbapenems, 9%. And so those test doses were being performed mostly in patients who had a penicillin allergy history, but we also have a guideline for patients who have a cephalosporin allergy history. And when we reviewed those test doses, we were largely looking at the safety or how many patients had an adverse drug reaction. And then of those adverse drug reactions, how many of those were hypersensitivity or allergy? And we found a total of 78 patients, which was 7.5%. Um, and the confidence interval was somewhere uh, from 5.9% to 9.2%, had a, a sign or symptom of an adverse reaction. So this could be something minor like a gastrointestinal intolerance, a fatigue, headache, um, or it could have been hypersensitivity. And so then we reviewed all of the uh, 78 with uh, two allergists sort of reviewing retrospectively all of the signs and symptoms that the patients reported. And we found that just 40 of the reactions, which is 3.8%, and the confidence interval there was from 2.8% to 5.2%. Uh, so these 40 patients, or less than 4%, had a confirmed hypersensitivity reaction. And so we were able to see that our guideline that we put into place was quite safe with just under 4% of the patients having a reaction that might be allergic. We also found that most of the allergy occurred with the full dose step, but that our the process of doing test doses did save um, some patients from having a reaction um, that might have been uh, bigger had we not done the test dose or baby dose. Um, most of our reactions, you could just, uh, was, they were treated with just discontinuing the drug. Um, and we found that only three of the allergy patients, three of the hypersensitivity reaction patients needed intramuscular epinephrine. Um, uh, we also looked at some risk factors for having a hypersensitivity reaction. And the one thing that was uh, predictive was ha having a cephalosporin allergy history. Um, and we actually hypothesize that this might be because the patients who have a cephalosporin allergy history, they might be more recent allergies, they might be more likely to be accurate, whereas penicillin allergies are mostly reported uh, a long time ago and are uh, broadly known not to be accurate in 90 to 95% of patients. And then we finally looked at uh, electronic health record updating. And we found that uh, we updated the record uh, less than half of the time, so 45% of the time, and that the record updating could consist of specifying things in the allergy record, deleting an allergy, or adding an allergy. Um, and so this was an area that we um, identified as uh, we could certainly do better with. Uh, but all in all, we uh, were presenting this uh, as sort of a really large multi-site body of evidence that shows that this guideline that we've been using for a number of years, um, which we previously showed improves antibiotic choice and now are showing was uh, safe to do. Great. And can you talk a little bit about the important takeaways of your study for itchy readers? Sure. This is uh, Erica. Um, so I'm a, a regular reader of itchy as a hospital epidemiologist and infection infectious disease physician. So I think when I look at the, the table of contents for almost every issue of itchy, there's something related to stewardship. There's also related uh, to C. diff prevention um, and then optimal treatment of infections. And this really fits squarely within that framework. It's about 
um, optimizing antibiotic use for our patients. It's about the safety of doing so and then reducing the potential adverse effects that have been associated with using alternatives to beta-lactam antibiotics. The other, I think, takeaway for itchy readers is that if you look um, in the supplement table one, it describes the hospital characteristics. Two of the hospitals are large academic health centers. Um, three of them are community hospitals, and they have various, they have varying different patient populations, but they also have different resources available to them. So at two of the hospitals, the community hospitals, there was um, not an allergy or immunology consultation available, and there was, there was no availability for penicillin skin testing. And yet, um, across these varying resources, these institutions were able to implement this uh, uh, guideline um, effectively and safely. So I think that um, from the reader's perspective, you can look at this and try to say, okay, how does my institution um, compare to these institutions and can I do this at my, my own facility? I think second, um, related to the different resources is that in that table, you'll see all the different sorts of role groups that are involved in these sort of projects. Um, from the physicians, both allergists and infectious disease physicians, infection control, clinical microbiology, nursing, um, and, and pharmacy. And so I think that really gets to the issue of collaboration um, in order to do um, this sort of program uh, safely in a variety of different settings. And do you have any future plans for this research? Yes, this is Paige. So we think this is really an exciting um, uh, safety outcome of the work that has been done, as Kim mentioned to date, um, in this inpatient pathway. There, however, are great opportunities to expand how we safely help uh, streamline penicillin um, and beta-lactam sensitive patients in operating rooms, in emergency rooms, and in the outpatient setting. In addition, we really, uh, this is a retrospective study, we could benefit from having a control group that um, we compare, we couldn't find really a baseline incidence of antibiotic reactions in the general population to compare our low weight rate of reactions to in this study. The other thing that is really evident from this study is that as Kim mentioned, 474 patients or 45% uh, was a really low amount of the 1,046 test doses to have their um, EHR updated after their successful test dose. We think this is a great opportunity uh, for improvement. We've been trying to experiment with ways to use clinical decision support, best practice alerting to help our frontline providers and staff who are implementing this pathway in a very multidisciplinary path, uh, fashion understand the importance of this subsequent test and that step. Because if they don't update the EHR, the future implications for patients in their prescribing continues to impact uh, the success of uh, their, their prescription and um, antibiotics that they receive. And so that's a real big opportunity for us to work on uh, in future studies. Thank you, Dr. Blumenthal, Dr. Wickner, and Dr. Shinoy for speaking with me today. Um, and listeners can look forward to reading the full article in the May issue of Itchy. Thanks again. Thank you. With me now is Raymond Dantes and Claire Rock, authors of the article, Hospital Epidemiologist and Infection Preventionist Opinions Regarding Hospital Onset Bacteremia and Fungemia as a Potential Healthcare-Associated Infection Metric. Welcome, Dr. Dante and Dr. Rock. Uh, before we get started, can you introduce yourselves to our listeners? 
Sure, I can, I can go ahead and get started. Okay. Uh, my name is Ray Dantes. Uh, I'm, I have uh, two roles. One, I'm uh, on the hospital medicine faculty at uh, Emory University Hospital. And then uh, for the other half, uh, I work at the CDC on a couple different topics. I work in the research and development pipeline for the National Healthcare Safety Network. Uh, and I also uh, work on subject matter expert uh, related issues for sepsis. My name is Claire Rock. I'm an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins University and associate hospital epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins Hospital. I'm also vice chair for the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America um, Research Network. And so I'm very excited to be here discussing this um, research that was done in collaboration with the Shea Research Committee. Great. Well, thank you both for taking time to talk to us today. Can you start by telling me about the research that you conducted and what your findings were? Sure. And uh, Claire, if you don't mind, I'll, uh, I can probably give a little bit of introduction here to the topic. So the CDC is exploring whether a measure of hospital onset bacteremia and fungemia should be added to the National Healthcare Safety Network's surveillance coverage and quality measurement portfolio. Now, I think the idea is quite simple from a patient perspective. You know, when I come to the hospital, I shouldn't be developing infections in my bloodstream. Um, and we think that this potential quality measure has several strengths. One, it captures healthcare-associated infections not currently under surveillance. It has potential to have fully automated surveillance from electronic health records. And it is uh, likely to be a more frequent event than central line-associated bloodstream infections, lending more statistical power to better separate over and underperforming units in hospitals. So I'll stop there. I guess I'll, um, I'll let Claire kind of talk about the, um, the article at this point. Yeah, so thanks, Ray. So it was great to, um, you know, collaborate with, with you and the, the CDC and the Shea Research Network and Research Committee and really understand how hospital epidemiologists and infection preventionists who are truly on the front line when it comes to surveilling these outcome measures and doing the performance improvement and um, that truly moves the needle and enhances patient safety. And we really wanted to understand um, at this early stage even what their opinion would be regarding this as an outcome measure. And so we know that nearly all of our hospitals measure and report and do performance improvement on their CLAPSIs or central line associated bloodstream infections um, and also on their bloodstream infections that are caused by um, MRSA or methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Um, but as Ray mentioned, that means that there's a huge vacuum of other um, infections that are acquired in the healthcare setting um, but are not being um, looked at and addressed and, and um, prevention efforts being made um, to try and enhance patient safety um, from that perspective. And so um, what we did was we um, developed a survey tool um, in conjunction with the Shea um, Research Committee and administered that through the research network. And so we had a great response rate. Our response rate was um, 67% or 133 hospitals had an infection prevention or hospital epidemiologist um, respond on behalf of the hospital. And overall, um, the results were actually very um, positive. It seemed that in general, the hospital epidemiologist and infection preventionist seemed supportive of um, expanding out the, the CLABSI uh, measure or 
using this hospital onset bacteremia, the majority, two thirds of the respondents um, actually felt that hospital onset bacteremia or fungemia events are preventable. And so really um, to us, I think showing that there is this opportunity um, to intervene and really address this patient harm um, that's happening. And then a lot of the respondents actually supported the fact um, of uh, reporting hospital onset bacteremia in addition to um, CLAPSI or even on its own as an outcome measure. And so I think while there's a lot more work to be done, sort of developing the measure and refining it, um, at least from the respondents that we had through the Shea Research Network, um, there does seem to be a lot of um, support for pursuing this as, a, as an outcome measure. And how is this research beneficial or of importance to the itchy readers? Thanks, Lindsay. This research, I think, is really critically important to itchy readers. And I think one of those reasons is that it represents um, the opinions and the perceptions of hospital epidemiologists and infection preventionists who are the itchy readers for, um, for the most part. And so it's really um, using a concept of trying to really hear from the front line to understand um, what their um, problems and, and what their um, issues may be in thinking about using this measure in a broad um, format. And I think it's important that hospital epidemiologists and infection preventionists understand that their opinions are being sought um, to really try and enhance this measure and make it something that's um, truly feasible to implement and something that can um, improve patient safety, um, but also take into account the workload that's already on hospital epidemiologists and infection prevention teams and understanding how we can have a measure that truly will enhance patient safety, but taking all of these other um, areas into consideration as well. And so I think that the um, itchy reader would really benefit from taking a, a look at the full paper and the um, different questions that we asked and, and what the responses were. Um, and certainly interested if there's um, any other um, opinions or if anybody wants to express any particular opinion related to any of those questions. Um, but I think it is critically important for the itchy reader to um, be involved at this early stage, even if it is in this format of a, of a survey and reading this information in the development of outcome measures. Great. Thank you. And Dr. Dantes, did you want to add anything to that? Thanks, Claire. I think that those are all great points. Uh, I think from our uh, CDC standpoint, you know, this paper is a very important um, uh, manuscript that captures some of the existing uh, perceptions and thoughts about how a hospital antibacteremia and fungemia measure could perform and how well it would be accepted. We think it will be a very important part of the broader work going into understanding how uh, this measure could come together and be a useful quality measure. And my last question for you is what additional research questions this study raised that you'd like to see investigated? So thanks, Lindsay. So I think every study um, really raises more questions um, often than answers and, and thinking about what the next steps are in um, evaluating this outcome measure. Obviously, this study does have some um, limitations. We don't even really have a clear definition of what hospital onset bacteremia and fungemia should be. And then there are other um, controversial areas, such as how do we interpret skin commensals and certain bacteria such as um, Enterococcus. 
the Shea Research Network does represent, it does have some um, community hospitals and other types of hospitals, but the majority of the research network um, are academic hospitals. So thinking a little bit more about how this finding could be generalized to those other, to those other settings um, would be important. Um, and I know that um, Dr. Dantes can talk from the um, CDC perspective because there's a lot of great work being done through the CDC Prevention um, Epicenter Program. So, Ray, do you, do you want to take it from here and, and let the listeners know a little bit about that? Sure. Thanks, Claire. I 100% agree that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to even just establish and validate a surveillance definition that makes sense for a lot of different populations, including potentially adults and pediatrics, uh, high-risk populations like neutropenic patients and burn patients, and a variety of healthcare settings. And then once we get that information or once we get that surveillance definition uh, more uh, firmed up and finalized, the next very crucial step is to understand where these hospital onset bacteremia and fungemia events are coming from. What proportion are due to central line associated bloodstream infections or potentially other devices or procedures? How many of these events result from, for example, gut translocation in very vulnerable patients? This information will help us answer a very crucial question. You know, what fraction of these events are potentially preventable? To help answer this, we've, uh, uh, we're supporting a CDC prevention epicenter study led by one of our, our manuscripts co-authors, Serbi Lika from the University of Maryland, um, to uh, help us uh, answer uh, these critical questions. So assuming that a acceptable fraction of hospital onset bacteremia and fungemia events are preventable, we then need to find out whether reducing these rates results in better patient outcomes like lower mortality, shorter hospitalizations, or lower costs. We we'll also need to come up with evidence-based interventions and tools for clinicians and infection preventionists to improve hospital onset bacteremia and fungemia rates. And finally, if we want to use this measure for public reporting, we will need to develop robust risk adjustment methods. Thank you, Dr. Dantes and Dr. Rock, for joining me today and talking about your research. Uh, before we conclude, Dr. Rock, if listeners want to learn more about the Shea Research Network, how can they do that? So um, we can we have a web page on the Shea website, and we can um, embed that link into the into the comments section for those that want more information. And um, but basically, the research network um, was created in 2011. And it was really a bringing together of the community of researchers and a network of research institutions um, that were vested in advancing the um, rigorous research um, to advance healthcare epidemiology and antibiotic stewardship. It's chaired by myself and Dr. Murren um, Schweitzer. Um, and we have a total of over 100 um, member institutions. Um, including 35 institutions that respond to more than 80% of the um, responses or requests to participate in research that's asked of them. And so I would encourage anybody that's listening and um, that's not sure if their hospital is a member of the research network or not to look on our website and you can reach out to Valerie DeLuni who, um, who um, administers the research network. And then for any um, researchers that are looking to, um, that have a feasible idea that could be, um, that could involve the research network, we have a very enthusiastic group 
of hospital epidemiologists, infection preventionists that are always willing to participate in a worthy research question. And so there's an opportunity also on the website to submit your um, research question and proposal for consideration um, to be um, administered or used through the research network. So lots of opportunities for hospitals and also for researchers. Great. Well, thank you again for joining me today. And as I mentioned, listeners can read your full article in the May issue of Itchy. Great. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. Joining me now is Dr. Gabriel Brigand, first author on the article, Motion Capture System to Assess Intraoperative Staff Movements and Door Openings, Impacts on Surrogates of the Infectious Risk in Surgery. Dr. Brigand, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by giving our listeners a little background to your study? Hi, Lindsay. So, yeah, we'll start with a quick introduction about what we've done. So, um, like everybody knows, um, surgical site infection is the uh, most common uh, SKS infection among uh, surgical patients. And it's le- leading to uh, a medical burden, clinical burden, with uh, sometimes uh, the need for a hospital readmission, and there is also a a financial burden associated with the SSIs. Contamination of wounds during surgery mainly occur at the time of of the procedure, of course. The contamination is coming from the patient's skin, sometimes from the surgical staff, uh, or uh, from the environment via um, the airborne, airborne microbes and contamination. So um, behaviors uh, in operating rooms and the infectious risk uh, has been uh, studied in the literature. And the literature is suggesting that the impact of uh, the team behavior on the surgical site infection risk is, uh, is happening. When we look at all guidance present uh, uh, worldwide, uh, we can clearly see that there is uh, only uh, recommendation based on uh, expert advice regarding uh, behavior during surgical procedure. Some of them are, are saying to restrict uh, the number of personal movements in the uh, operating room. Some of them uh, are saying that staff should keep their movement in and out of the operating area at, the, at a minimum. And wh- when we look at the CDC uh, recommendation, uh, not the, the latest, but the previous one in uh, 1999, we can see that door um, from the operating room needs need to be to be kept uh, closed uh, and uh, uh, with the necessary for the person to uh, keep their movement at, at a minimum. So there is only expert advices in the, in the current knowledge uh, on, this, uh, on this domain. And what were the objectives of your study? So the objective of this study was to observe and to assess the staff movements in the operating room during surgical procedures and to uh, see if there, if there is a viability uh, during, during, uh, during this procedure. And then we tried to correlate the, the staff movements with surrogates of the exogenous risk to approach uh, uh, the infectious risk and the risk of uh, uh, subsequent uh, surgical site infection. And can you talk a little bit about your study design and what you found? So uh, it was a multi-center study uh, performed in France, uh, very observational. We included uh, 13 operating theaters from 10 hospitals. We selected uh, only two surgical specialties, uh, the orthopedic and the cardiac surgery, because they are both uh, reproducible uh, with a continuous cutaneous approach. 
Then uh, we try to observe using uh, video tracking all movements and all door openings in this uh, in this theater. So for those, we used we used uh, an autonomous uh, inertial sensor fixed on uh, each door, recording all door opening and movements. And then we used a network of uh, video cameras, infrared uh, video cameras placed on, on the wall of each uh, operating room, uh, and uh, which uh, triangulated uh, a marker uh, stuck on the head cover of each personnel working in the operating theater. Uh, so it was a reflective uh, marker distinguishing professional categories. So there was one for surgeon, one for operating room nurses, uh, another one for anesthetic teams, and, and, and the last one for other categories of staff. And we were able to see all uh, uh, the movements, the number of persons uh, at each step of uh, the surgical procedure. Added to this, the surrogates of infectious risk were uh, uh, the first one was the particle counts. So we used uh, photo detection devices to, uh, to assess every three minutes uh, the number of particles present in the air with three types of uh, uh, three uh, particle sizes. The first one was 0.2 uh, micrometers, second one 0.5 and last one five micrometers. So it was not a fully longitudinal assessment, but uh, uh, one uh, measure, uh, one minute of, um, of measure every three uh, minutes during all uh, the surgical procedure. The second one was a microbiological air count. Uh, and it was in this case, not longitudinal, but at several points, the first one was during the incision of uh, the, the, the wound, the cutaneous, uh, the skin of patients. The second one was after a bone cut, and the third one was at the closure of the wound. And finally, we used a, a, a pad to uh, quantify the contamination of the wound at the end of the surgery. So it, we call that a wound sampling. And uh, this pad was uh, put on the, on the wound at the end, then culture uh, on, in a buffer to assess the quantity per, centi per centimeter uh, of, of tissue uh, uh, of, of, uh, of the wound at the end of, of the, the, the surgical procedures. So in terms of results, we included six operating room of orthopedic surgery. Four of them were, were with the laminaria flows. Uh, and in total, we uh, included 35 procedures uh, in orthopedic surgery. Uh, 18 of them were total hip replacement, 17 were total knee replacement for medium duration of procedure uh, from incision to closure, uh, close to one hour, which is not very surprising. The third one type of uh, surgery was uh, the cardiac surgery with seven operating rooms included. Two were uh, in university hospital one with laminar flow uh, among all these uh, seven operating rooms, 25 procedures included. Uh, um, among, the, among them, there was 12 cabbage for a median duration of uh, surgery and procedure from incision to closure of 3.5 uh, uh, hours. Using all this, uh, uh, this data, we try to assess the correlation between movements and uh, and uh, the surrogate of uh, the infectious risk using a static statistical method. So we, we used uh, um, firstly uh, an univariate linear uh, mixed method, and then 
we, uh, according to what we found with this first step of uh, statistic, we included this in a multivariate model uh, that could uh, give us, you know, the most adjusted uh, factors linked to uh, uh, behavior and the pure correlation between the behavior, uh, I, I mean the movements, uh, staff movements, and the spreads of, uh, of the infectious risk. What were the main takeaways that would be of interest to itchy readers? So uh, if we take uh, in terms of results, uh, what we observed uh, mainly uh, in this uh, study. So first for door openings, the median frequency of door openings was about 19 uh, openings per hour. Uh, there was a, a large variation across operating rooms. It was also the case, of course, across centers and from in, if we take one operating room, there was a large variation from one team to another. Who were generating all these uh, door openings? So mainly it was uh, the anesthetics team and uh, persons not directly involved in the procedures. It was more or less the same for orthopedic and cardiothoracic surgery. Then um, the cumulative duration uh, of door uh, opened was about four minutes for uh, um, corresponding to uh, around 6% uh, of the time from incision to closure uh, uh, of the wound. It was more or less the same for cardi cardiothoracic cardiac surgery uh, with uh, a bit more uh, door openings, 23 uh, per hour, uh, 30 mi 13 minutes uh, of, uh, for the duration of, of door openings and 7.3% of the, the operating time uh, it was operating this this uh, this percentage of of the operating time something. So, uh, what about the number of uh, person on staff uh, movements? So the number of person present from incision to closure was uh, in median ten. The median cumulative time spent by individuals was about one point seven hours, and uh, the cumulated movement by the entire team from incision to skin closure for one uh, surgical procedure represented about 12 kilometers. Each member of the team walked a median of 373 meters during, uh, from incision to, to skin closure in orthopedic surgery and uh, more than 800 meters in cardiac surgery. When we looked at, at the surrogate and the correlation, we found uh, we found a direct correlation uh, between uh, door openings uh, and, the uh, and the duration of door openings with uh, the number uh, of, part of uh, 0.3 micrometers particles. Uh, it was also the, the case for 0.5 micrometers and, uh, and, uh, and the same uh, equality for, uh, for five micrometers. Uh, we also found a correlation uh, between uh, the number of door openings and duration of door openings with uh, the air microbial count. When we used uh, uh, multivariate analysis, we found only a correlation with the number of door openings. So if you look at the article, it's uh, pretty well described in, in table two. Uh, then uh, we tried to look at the cumulated movements uh, by the team and, and uh, its impact on, on the surrogate of, uh, of the air contamination. And uh, the association between the accumulated movements and the air contamination was pretty strong. It was the strongest uh, association we found 
in terms of uh, staff behaviors uh, on the impact, uh, on, on the air contamination, sorry. Uh, and it was found uh, equally for, it was found for the 0.3 micrometers, very strong correlation, as I said, and it was also found after uh, putting it in a, in a, in a, in a multivariate uh, analysis. And the final um, takeaway I can, I can say, and I think it's the, the main one, is uh, when you look at uh, the interaction between the number of persons in the operating room and their movement, a high number of static persons in the operating room will, will consistently generate less airborne particles and bacteria than a restricted number of persons with unregulated movement. And lastly, do you have any future plans for this research? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, so it was uh, purely uh, observational. So uh, we found that there was something going, going on, you know, uh, the, the association between staff movements and a potential risk of uh, surgical site infection. So the idea now, and it's running right now, uh, we uh, launch a, a, a cluster randomized trial uh, assessing from one side, uh, uh, operating room in orthopedic surgery without any intervention, so the control arm. And in the other side, we, the other side uh, in, another, in another part of, uh, of uh, 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 centers, we are applying a system of monitoring. Real-time mon monitoring, we are putting sensors, like I said, not exactly the same as it for this study, but, but uh, uh, that uh, a network of sensors we developed for uh, this particular trial. And we are um, providing to, uh, to center included in the, uh, in the intervention harm, uh, all data in real time of, of what's happening in their, in their operating room. So we focused on door openings, on uh, uh, the, um, the noise during uh, surgery, and the protocol uh, has just been uh, selected and uh, will be published soon in uh, the trials uh, journal. So, so that's what we are uh, try, trying to, um, you know, to, to, uh, to run uh, right now. And uh, the, um, the uh, results from these trials will be probably available end of uh, 2020. Thank you, Dr. Brigand. Uh, we look forward to learning more as your research progresses. And thanks for joining us today. This concludes this episode of the Itchy Podcast. Be sure to read the full May issue of Itchy Online. Thanks for listening.